Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Yes, you're very welcome back to our weekly science program. It's called Future Proof. My name is Jonathan McRae. If you'd like to email us, science at newstalk.com, or you can text us 53106 uh, with all of your comments. We get to all of those comments in the podcast. Uh, you can listen and subscribe for free in the News Talk app, powered by Go Loud. Our brain uh, is a, a busy place. It has uh, about 86 billion neurons. Uh, but how much storage do we need of that for our memories? And how does that work? Well, joining me now is Tomas Ryan. He's Associate Professor in Trinity's School of Biochemistry and Immunology, TBSI, and the Trinity College Institute of Neuroscience. Um, so, Tomas, uh, we spoke to you before about uh, about memory and how memories form in the brain. But just remind us, w- what exactly is going on when we have a new experience? Uh, what happens inside the hardware of our brain? So... I don't know how memory is stored in the brain, and none of my colleagues do either. That's why it's such an exciting subject. Now, the problem with memory, uh, unlike a lot of other things in biology, is that one moment it's there and another moment it's not. You forget things, you remember things spontaneously. And we want to understand this because, of course, we want to be able to treat disorders of memory like Alzheimer's disease. But we also want to understand how we think. We want to understand ourselves better. And people like me, we feel that if we understand memory, then we'll get closer to understanding uh, the Rosetta Stone of the brain, that we'll get closer to understanding how is it that information uh, is coded in the brain. Now, until we have a good idea of how information is stored in the brain, it's very difficult to quantify informational capacity. It's very difficult for me to say how many gigabytes are there on the hard drive of your brain. But increasingly, we're starting to see that to think about memory in the brain, we shouldn't really be too tied to ideas of information uh, from computer science. And it seems more and more that our brain works more like an analog device. And the way we're storing information on the structure of the brain might be more analogous to how we store information in a sculpture. And as our brains become more refined and more complex, either by evolution as we go from ape-like creatures to homo sapiens, or in our own lifetime as we educate ourselves, that what we're doing is chiseling away at very subtle aspects of the sculpture of our brain. And I don't think anybody really asks how much information we can store in a sculpture. We're always making it more complex, and as we do, we're storing more information, but it's not something that we'd usually put uh, a number on. That's a really interesting uh, analogy. Um, when um, when you say we forget things, um, do we have evidence that we do? I mean, that we those those memories are gone because you know you do hear of people who have something triggered and they go, "Oh, I remember something I haven't thought of in however long," and 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 long forgotten. Um, things can come back into the brain. I mean, is, is there any evidence to suggest that we might, we might still have the memories that we formed somewhere in our brain, but um, we don't, we're not always able to access them? So a large part of my, my work and the work of my research group focuses on the question of forgetting. So we want to know what happens when we lose a memory. Are they still present in the brain and can we retrieve them? And we've been able to do experiments where we've showed that in many kinds of forgetting, I'm talking about mice, not humans, but we believe the same is going to be true of humans. That when you get Alzheimer's or when you hit your head and you forget a memory because of, because of trauma, or even just with everyday forgetting, 
that the memories are in your brain somewhere, but they're just not expressing themselves. And if we found if we follow these memories in the brain and we stimulate the cells that are coding for those memories, then we're able to trigger the retrieval of these memories. So this gives us evidence that memories are surviving in the structure of the brain as some kind of informational state. And we call that the engram. Um, and aside from studying forgetting and the conditions for how memories are expressed, my group is really interested in, in chasing the engram. And like many of my colleagues, we want to understand how engrams are formed in the brain and what they actually look like. Talk to me about your, your research. Um, how can you study um, things like, like memories being lost and retrieved? Uh, and, um, and what does it tell us that you can stimulate a certain part of uh, a brain or a certain neuron and people can then, or sorry, mice can then remember something that they'd forgotten? We've been puzzling about memory for thousands of years. Uh, in ancient Egypt and ancient Greece, many people believed that the seat of memory and consciousness was the heart. And the reason they thought that was because the heart's activity tended to correlate with our emotional state. And we tend to make some of the same, same mistakes today when we think about memory because it's got two sides to it. It's got the light side of memory, which is when our brain is active and recalling or learning something, and we can study the activity patterns that are happening in our brain when, when that's occurring. But the dark side of memory is when it's quiet. It's the part of your brain that stays there even if you don't think about a memory for years while you're sleeping, if you're in a coma, if you hit your head, those memories are often surviving. So there's something about the quiet structural nature of our brain that is holding information. And only in the past 10 years or so have we been in a position to chase down, first of all, where the engram is in the brain or where our engrams are, and now we're starting to get to be in a position of what that change is. What is the difference that makes a difference when we encode a memory in the brain? So uh, you talk about engrams. Are these cells? Are they messages? Are they like photons? Are they part wave particle, part physical? So the short answer is we don't know. The engram is a philosophical concept. Oh, really? Okay. And what it means is... We have changes that are happening in our brain all the time. Your brain is in a constant dynamic state of flux, moment to moment. And the reason for that is spontaneous brain activity. Our brain, as you said, is 86 billion neurons. It's connected by a network that is crucially electrically active. So when you understand that a brain, first of all, is a complex network, and secondly, is electrically active, you can imagine how much complex activity is happening moment to moment. Some of it is spontaneous. Some of it is that you're still growing if you're a teenager or if you're under 25. For people like us, Jonathan, it's because we're slowly degenerating. So it's also changing moment to moment because of that. Um, and also there's just all kinds of learning happening. And some of that learning is leaving long-term changes in the brain. And the challenge as scientists is to find the changes that are accounting for a particular memory. Mm. Before you learn something and after you learn something, I get two different versions of your brain. And the difference between those two brains is the engram. Yeah. Now, the problem is there's all sorts of random differences between your two brains also. So we're chasing down the difference that makes a difference that allows us to uh, say we have control of a particular memory. And we think that we can identify the cells that are holding an engram. We call these engram cells. And we do this by hijacking uh, certain genetic 
uh, activity in the brain. So some genes tend to be turned on in your brain when the cell is very active. And so we can hitchhike on these genes to identify and tag particular cells that are activated by a particular memory. So we, we call them engram cells, but we don't know how they're storing an engram. But we know if we stimulate these cells, we can get a subject to recall a memory, even when they seem to have forgotten it. So this gives us an experimental handle on something of the stuff of memory. And what we've done recently is to try to narrow in on what is it about these cells that is storing the information. Um. Do, I mean, when, we, when you talk about engram cells, presumably uh, we can't we can't say, oh, this is a memory of a of the post box I once posted my letter to Santa in when I was six years old. Like that, each cell, like that we because we do have place cells, right? We have um, cells in the brain that are associated with a particular geo um, geophysical place in time in 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 the world, which is which is crazy to me. Do, do, do we think that we possibly have memory cells? Because it seems to me that memories are are too complex to be able to pin down to something as as simple as a GPS location. So I think we do have memory cells in the brain, but we're not quite certain how they're contributing to information. Uh, we are nowhere near a point in the history of our science where I can go into your brain and read out your memory of this conversation or, or where you live or what your favorite food is. Um, and the reason for that is we don't know what the code is for how these cells are actually storing the information. And there are many scientific ideas for how they're storing information. Some people believe that there are molecules within these cells that are storing the information in some kind of a biochemical or a genetic format. Right. Other people will argue that the network of the brain is relatively fixed and we're storing the information at set points in different nodes of the network of our brain. And others still will argue that the memory is not in the cells at all, but that the cells are in the engram. And the engram is more of a structure that emerges across the brain. I would put myself uh, in that camp because I think we have developing evidence to suggest that the engram is not forming in the engram cells, but rather the engram cells are contributing to a greater structural memory. You're, when you say structure, you're talking about a virtual structure. You're not talking about a physical part oh, no, of the I, brain. I mean very much a physical structure. Oh, wow. Okay. Brain. So our brains are rewiring with experience just as they wire in development. But, what, I mean, would, would we not have found this structure? I mean you know, damage to the brain, we lose hair, you know, we lose memories. Surely we would have zeroed in on a place by now if there was a physical structure that in, in that housed our memories? So the, the trick is that very few cells at any particular point in time actually store a particular engram. So you have 86 billion cells in your brain. Maybe only a few hundred thousand of them are involved in a particular engram. And so identifying those cells and the structural changes that happen between them is like looking for a needle in a haystack. Right. And our ability to do that has only come about relatively recently. But I think that the issue is that memory is about the relationship between these engrams and the world. And we tend to overly focus on the brain itself. And we need to understand that the brain works in relation to the environment that we evolved in. So just as for genetics, there's no information that is intrinsic to a DNA sequence. Genetics has meaning because these sequences create codes that have meaning in the environment of a cell, yeah. developing embryo, 
And I think the same is true of memory, that the information and meaning is about the relationship between our brains and the world that we live in. Talk to me about um, practically how you do this with, with um, mice, models, mouse models in the lab. What, what, um, what, what are you doing to, um, to, to study memory in these models and what, what has this new paper shown us? So what we can do is to train animals to do different behavioral tasks. Mice are what we focus on. They're very intelligent creatures. And psychologists have been developing uh, ways of studying mouse behavior for over 50 years. So mice can learn how to navigate a maze. They can learn that a particular place is good or bad. They're very good at foraging. They're actually very creative in some ways. So we can label the engram cells that are activated by different memories in the same mouse brain. And in this particular study, what we did was to label two different memories that had nothing to do with each other. We trained the mouse to recognize one, con one context, which it learned the walls, the smell of, became familiar with it. And we labeled the engram cells for that memory. Then we got the mice to experience a slightly negative experience. So it's a mild foot shock, which it doesn't like. It causes it some discomfort, but no harm. And it learns that another particular place is, is bad. And these memories are quite separate in the brain. They are stored in different cells. Crucially, what we did then was to link these two memories by associating cues that were present for both memory A and memory B. And as we did this, we followed what happened to the engram cells that we had crucially already labeled in the brain. So because we'd labeled with, with genetic techniques engram A cells and engram B cells, we knew where they were in the brain, we knew what they looked like. And then when we linked these two memories, which before had nothing to do with each other, but now became part of the same episode. By, by, by sort of association like Pavlov? That's sort yes, of by idea. a Pavlovian association. Right. So we trained the animals. No, no interventions in the brain, just normal behavioral training. We saw that these two engrams became structurally connected. And more wow. than that, we showed that if we stimulated optogenetically, that means with light to activate the brain cells, in one engram, it activated the other engram. Oh my God. And on top of that, if we inhibited the second engram, it stopped the first engram from being expressed. So these two engrams had become structurally linked as a result of the behavioral training wow. that we had done. And in doing so, we could also find some molecular changes that were enabling this process to occur. So what we think this indicates is good evidence in favor of the idea that memories are plasticity or changes. Neuroscientists use the word plasticity. It's just a fancy word that means change. Uh, that the changes between the engram cells is what is carrying the information to tell us about the world and not necessarily things that are within these cells. So, so in these mice, you were able to essentially witness the formation of, a, of, a, of an association of two memories and the linking of them in the brain that you had done in real life. Exactly. Wow. And what we think is this linking of the two memories is like the evolving sculpture. It means we have a brain that's already very complicated and we're just changing it in a very slight way that gives it a new structural meaning. Because of this connectivity, the brain now knows something about the world that it didn't know before. But as scientists, we cannot simply look at these connections and derive that information. We only know about it because we are looking at the relationship between that animal, between that mouse, and the world as it sees it. A big mistake that I think we make in neuroscience and psychology is that we look at it from the perspective of a third-person observer. I look at what's happening in Jonathan's brain, and I try and derive what that means about the world. 
when really I need to be looking at what Jonathan's brain is responding to the world, what the world means to Jonathan's brain, which is a very different question. <laughs> we need to move beyond a description of our third-person observer uh, perspective of the brain and move towards a scientific account of the first-person subjective experience of the world, because that's where the real stuff of information is. Absolutely fascinating research. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Tomas Ryan, Associate Professor in Trinity School of Biochemistry and Immunology. Really great to have you on again. Thanks, Tomas. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk.